Um, so uh, if you're new, we've been going through Revelation for a long time, uh, quite some time actually for a few months. So uh, we're coming pretty close to the end here, but uh, let's quickly go over a couple things that we've learned so far. I think that's going to be helpful as we go. Um, one, clearly we've been saying it throughout, things are not as they seem. It's a, th it's a theme throughout Revelation. You need to understand that what you think is maybe isn't what you think, okay? Things are not as they seem. And although some people like to think otherwise, as you'll see, our lives here on earth is no cakewalk, and I mean that, right? It's full of the unexpected, and much of it can be quite difficult. Life isn't just this easy walk through the park, as I think many people like to think it is. Life is difficult, and I think if you live life long enough, you'll realize that indeed it is. And we know this is true because the dragon, as we found out, is after us. He's trying to make our life really difficult. He's trying to ruin things. He's got two beastly friends that are, of course, after us along as well. And then, of course, there's Babylon the Great, um, the mother of harlots, trying to entice us, as I said, to jump in bed with anyone or anything that come down the street, particularly anything or anyone that isn't God himself. And so whether we like to recognize it or not, I think one thing we're seeing is that our life is a battle. Maybe you've heard it called a spiritual battle before here at church, but it's a battle. And make no mistake. At every point in your life, you are constantly battling. I love this quote by Eugene Peterson. Let me read it for you. It's on the, uh, it'll be on the screen. If we suppose, which many seem to, that salvation is a diploma that qualifies us for eternity, a diploma we can frame and hang on our bedroom wall, then we have it all wrong. It is battle. The moment we walk away from the Eucharist, which is a fancy word for communion, Having received the life of the Lord, we walk into Armageddon where we exercise the strength of the Lord. People have this tendency to think that if you have salvation or if you know Jesus, that all of a sudden it's this like thing, like a diploma that you get when you graduate from high school and you put it on your wall, never to look at it again, never to think about it again. That it's like your ticket, like a golden ticket into heaven or something. But that's not what Revelation tells us. Salvation is a ticket in some ways where the enemy comes at you harder while you're here. We go right into battle the moment you walk away from saying, yes, I do, to Jesus, and you walk right into the battle. Now, if that's scary to you, you're like, man, that's not really good news. That's not what I wanted to hear. I'm not sure if I'm down for that, Pastor. We also know, and we've learned in Revelation, that the dragon is thrown down. The reason why our lives here are difficult is because the dragon has been thrown down from the heavenly realms, that the cosmic battle has won, and then indeed, Babylon the Great, as we found out last week, is fallen. And because of this, the hallelujah chorus is being sung, and there's going to be a marriage feast, and our bridegroom, Jesus, he's proposed to us. We said yes to him, and he's preparing a room for us in his father's house one day to return to take us home, to be with him where we belong. And so in today's passage, in chapter 19, as soon as we hear about the marriage feast that's going to happen, once Babylon falls and the hallelujah choruses go up, it says that John says, and I saw Heaven open and behold, it says. John looks up and he sees the heavens open yet again. And it says he sees. What? What does he see? Jesus coming, riding on a white horse, riding into battle. Look, John says, here he comes. A knight in shining armor, perhaps, if you want to think of it that way. But then we have to ask, wait, why? Pastor, why does John see Jesus as a warrior riding into battle? Shouldn't he be clothed in festive clothing, right, ready for a marriage feast, as you said last week? He should be coming ready for a wedding. 
We were invited to the wedding. We're a part of the wedding. We're the bride. Why is he coming as a soldier, as a warrior? And even more importantly, why is he coming as a warrior if you said that the war is won? Why ride into battle if the war is already won? If the dragon is beaten and Babylon has fallen, why are we battling? That's what we want to find out today. What does this mean for us? Why is this the thing that John sees next after the marriage feast? So we're going to try to find that out today. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. As always, the words will be on the screen behind me. We'll read, pray, and then we're going to kind of go through this, because I think what we're going to find is something really, really cool. So let's read this together. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. And I'm reading in the NASB, as always. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly about in mid-heaven, Come! Assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slave and small and great. And then I saw a beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, those who were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and jump right in. Father, help us to see what John sees. And in seeing what we see, help us to know what it means for us in our lives, how it impacts how we live here on this earth as we await you coming back to come get us as our bridegroom, we as your bride. Help to speak in and through me, for I am weak and feeble as always, and we pray that your spirit would be alive in helping us to listen and do all that we need to learn of you and to live life to the full. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you some background information about what we just read, right? Pretty cool passage. Uh, maybe you think so. Um, the praise team uh, described it as gory when we read it on Friday as we were going over it, right? But the fifth act, we're in the fifth act of Revelation now, okay? And as we mentioned, Revelation is divided into five acts all surrounding the word open. So in verse 19, 11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and look, it says. So the fifth act is the final act of this whole drama that we've been looking at. And within this act, and perhaps the reason I've been so excited to preach this part of it, anticipating it so much, is this act describes what the future is going to be like, or what things are going to be like in the end, or as people like to say, the end times, right? But before you let your imaginations run wild about what the end times are, because I think whenever I, when people say end times, then we start thinking about destruction and comets and, you know, the earth splitting and all this other stuff happening. Before you get there, okay, let's keep in mind a few things to understand what the end is about, okay? So number one, the first thing you got to remember, the end isn't really the end, well, at least not for everyone. 
It's surely the end for evil and the forces of evil. The dragon, as we said, know that its time is limited. Babylon has fallen. And as we read, the beast and other things are thrown into the lake of fire, which sucks, of course. But for the 144,000, the bride, the church, the people with the mark of the Lamb, it is not the end. It is an entry into the new chapter, into the new heaven and the new earth, as we'll find out in verse uh, chapter 21. So this part, though it is the end for some, for the church, it's a new transition. It's like a new chapter in our lives, if you will. Okay? The second thing you have to remember and keep in mind, the end is all about when the kingdom comes fully, and so therefore the end isn't about knowing when the end is going to come or what the end is going to be like necessarily. I think whenever we talk about the end times, people generally want to go, okay, when is the end times coming? People will say, oh, this is happening and this is happening in the world. Oh, that means the end times is coming. Or how are we going to know the end times so we can prepare ourselves for the end times? The end times isn't about that at all. It's describing what the kingdom or our new reality is actually like. And so the end time is actually fairly simple if you want to put it that way. It's about Jesus and his kingdom. The whole point of this final act from 1911 on to the end of Revelation is about two things. One, an imaginative look at the kingdom of God, right? Picturing and imagining what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And then secondly, a deep dive into the king of that kingdom, who is Jesus. Hopefully causing us to fall more and more in love with him. Because I think if we're honest, we can get quite worked up and consumed about like what's going to happen here on the earth oh, this means the world is coming to an end. This means the destruction of this and this and this, right? So the final act and things like this, right? right, What we're seeing is the promise of what Jesus had said to the disciples way back in the beginning. All the things that he promised to them, he said, this is what's going to happen. This is basically the, this is what you're going to be getting into when you follow me, kind of a promise. This is what we're seeing. What we're being shown, essentially, is this is why you got into all that you got into. This is why you followed me in the first place, okay? So the end is about this, about Jesus and the kingdom, not about the destruction of the world or anything like that. It really is about Jesus and the new kingdom that he's bringing, okay? So keep that in mind for the next few weeks as we go through the rest. Now let's break down the scene here, okay? Let's break down the scene, see what happens, and then we'll answer a couple questions about what we're seeing. First, when Jesus sees heaven open, he sees someone riding in on a white horse striding into battle. And simply put, in my opinion, this person is what I would like to call a bad man. If you watch football and if you watch First Take, uh, Stephen A. Smith likes to describe Aaron Rodgers, who might be the best quarterback in the league, as he's a bad man. Basically, it's another way of saying that he's bad, and you can fill in the blank, which is inappropriate for me to say here. Right? He's a bad man. And simply put, or as Chris Park would like to say, Jesus is OP. Why is he this way? Why is he a bad man? Well, look at the descriptions. He's got eyes of flame, really cool. He's got a robe that's dipped in blood, pretty cool. He's got an army following him, again, pretty cool. And he's got a sword that comes out of his mouth and inscribed them in all the words, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a pretty awesome, that's a pretty bad fill-in-the-blank description of someone, right? I'm going to slip and I'm going to say the word one of these moments. I hope I don't. We can edit it out. I'm going to get Jim to edit it if I ever say it. Jesus in here is described as a warrior unlike you've ever, ever seen. A warrior you like to see in one of those movies coming in on a horse, riding in, again, followed by his armies. Bad man that he is coming in. And we find out in, this, in the passage that whatever happens at the end, whoever he's battling, well, it doesn't really end well for them, does it? I mean, take a look at what happens. The horse rider, faithful and true, and his army are riding in, and there's opposition. They're gathered. The beasts and the kings of the earth, their armies and the false prophet and the rest. They're gathered ready for battle, but with 
without an actual battle, interestingly, the opposition is defeated. Right? There's no mention of a battle. They gather and all of a sudden the enemies are defeated like, like that. The beasts and the false prophets are seized, it says, and thrown into the lake of fire, which is the Revelation way of saying hell. Immediately, they're just gathered up, just thrown into the lake of fire. And the rest, it says they're killed by the sword that comes from this horseman's mouth. And then their carcasses that are left over after having been killed are then eaten up by the birds that God called to say, hey, come and have some dinner. We find out that God is organizing two feasts in the end. One's a marriage feast, and the other is what he calls the Great Supper. And a question we might ask is, which is your destiny? Because it's going to be one or the other. Now, you might be saying, okay, cool story, Pastor, but what's the point? Okay. I mean, what does it mean? Even if Jesus is so-and-so, as you call, so bad, like he's a bad man, like what does it mean for us? Okay. I think it means a couple things. One, our future destiny is all about a person. The end is all about Jesus. It's why when the heaven is opened up, finally we get to the fifth act, what John sees isn't a place, isn't a castle, isn't some glorious description of the house that we're going to be in. It's a person, which is to say all of this, all of Christianity, all of our faith and what we're headed to is a person. What we're looking forward to isn't a place. What we're looking forward to isn't really eternity in a sense. What we're looking forward to is a person, Jesus, and eternity with that person. Because in truth, eternity and all of it, heaven, is worthless without Jesus. It's why I love this quote by John Piper. I've said it in here a bunch of times. It'll be on the screen in a second. But it's this quote. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, and all the food you've ever liked, and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters, none of it, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus were not there? Basically, if you could have a perfect world where nothing went wrong, where everything seemed good, would that be enough for you if Jesus wasn't going to be there? That's the question. It's like, would you want to be at the marriage feast if the bridegroom wasn't there? Would you ever go to a wedding when you knew that only one of the two were going to show up? I mean, what's a marriage without one of the two? What's a marriage without a bridegroom? Our future is about a person, not about a place. It's the Christian language of why we say everything is about a relationship with Jesus, right? We, that's the way we put it. It's because what we're looking forward to is a person, not a place. The second thing, the reason our future is all about Jesus or a person is simply because Jesus is truly unlike anyone we've ever known. Anyone we know, anyone we've, we've known, or unlike anyone we will know. He is marvelous, stunning, majestic, amazing. You can throw all the best adjectives and superlatives at him and is still with lack in describing how awesome he is. And I think what this scene is doing is telling us why Jesus is that awesome or why he's so bad, fill in the blank. Because, and catch this, if the future is about a person, right? If our destiny, if the thing that we're all here for, if the thing this is all going to lead to is about a person, and it's not even about the perfect world, and the perfect world that we might be in is all worthless without the person, then in my opinion, then that person better be really, really awesome if it's all going to be worth it. Am I right? Like, I could tell you, for instance, that marriage is great. I could tell you that being married is awesome. But if you're going to look forward to marriage, the thing that you must look forward to and have in mind is the person, right? 
that person's got to be freaking awesome if indeed marriage is going to be awesome. And I think for us, the reason why Jesus has to be described this way on some levels is because he has to be awesome. If not, then why look forward to a person? So if we know that we're engaged to the bridegroom and Jesus is our bridegroom, we know that he's preparing a room for us and he's coming back to take us home with him, then we have to know that he's worth it. We have to know who we're engaged to, if it were. Or it's like this. If you ever hear that someone's, like, you know, like, let's say you hear on Facebook that someone you know just got engaged and you had no idea. The first thing you want to go is like, dude, I heard so-and-so got engaged. And the next thing that happens is someone's going to be like, dude, I heard he or she, like, He's like this, and he's got he's tall, he's whatever, blah, 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 he's blah, 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 blah. or she's like this, and he's like this. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. You want to know and be happy for the people because the person they got engaged to is of this nature. And so what we're going to do for the rest of this time is to find out what he's like, why he's worth it, and why our future is about a person, not a place. Cool? So Jesus, then, as we've been described here, is the warrior king. Jesus rides, he rides it on a horse, and horses back then were symbols of war, which means Jesus riding into the war, right? And in the first century, when a king rode a horse, he was riding into war, and when he rode a donkey, he was riding into peace, which is why when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as we'll get to in a couple weeks, he rides in on a donkey. But there's something very interesting going on here when Jesus rides in on a horse. He rides into war, and thus we would think after Babylon has fallen, the final battle, but we find out in the passage, there is no battle. So you got to go, why is he riding into battle if there's no battle? That sounds kind of stupid. Well, the reason he rides into battle, even though there's not going to be a battle, is because a victory was already won. And we found this out before. And because the victory is already won, Jesus is just riding in to kind of cement and implement his victory, saying, it's done. My victory, finally, it's over. It's been done. We're going to put it to rest, essentially. It's why the enemies are so quickly seized, so easily finished off. Gory, yes but easy nonetheless, right? Jesus wins simply without even fighting the final battle because the final battle has already been won. Last I checked, nobody ever does that. That's why I call Jesus bad fill in the blank. He's a bad man. Final battles don't even, ain't even a thing. Just wins before he gets there. But if this is the truth of the passage, the final battle is won without actually being fought, then we have to ask, okay, I get he's won, but, I mean, pastor, let me just be honest with you. It's not that impressive unless we know why he wins. And even more importantly, how he wins. You're not going to convince me to watch a movie about a battle that gets won if you don't tell me why he wins and how he wins. So, glad you asked. I'll tell you why he wins and how he wins. Here's why he wins. Number one, Jesus wins because it is who he is. All Jesus does is win. Win, 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 win. No one can defeat him. No one can overcome him. Think about it. He let, and I use that word, uh, he, he let, he allowed death and evil to unleash everything they had on him. To the point where the Jewish leadership, his own Jewish people, crucified him rather than a serial killer, even though no one could actually find anything wrong, although he was guilt, I mean, innocent completely, not guilty at all, so he let death just go ham on him and just hammer him with everything they got. And guess what happened? They lost. Like a boss, he just took it. 
And the best part is that evil thought, as they were doing it, evil thought that they were killing him, that they were winning, that they had somehow had the upper hand. But because they killed Jesus, then they realized, ah, F, we just lost. It's like you thought you won, but in your winning, you realize you allowed Jesus to win. Because in killing Jesus, death killed itself. He can't lose. He wins simply because of who he is. Number two reason why Jesus wins. He wins because he's faithful and true, he's called. Jesus is a faithful person from beginning to end. Wholly committed to his Father's will from beginning to end. True from beginning to end. Always reliable, always genuine, always authentic. There's nothing hiding in his closet. Nothing people can dig up to use against him. Completely innocent, always victorious. Every political leader you've had for a long time, every time you thought he was awesome or amazing, somehow, someway, someone digs up some garbage from their skeleton closet and they always use it against them. Well, Jesus, he ain't got no skeletons in the closet. None. Faithful and true. Winner all the way. Number three, Jesus wins because it says his eyes are a flame of fire. People like to say you can see it in their eyes. What this means is that you can see a person's soul when you peer into their eyes. Just look into their eyes and the people say, you can see everything that you need to know. Well, Jesus' eyes are pure. They're bright. But more so than even pure and bright, they're penetrating and they're purifying. His eyes don't just look at us, they look through us. And when they look through us, nothing can be hidden from him and we're level, so he wins. He finds everything out that he needs to find. Number four, why Jesus wins. Jesus wins because upon his head are many diadems. Diadems are the word for crowns, and crowns are a symbol of victory. And so it says, on his head were many. That's John's way of saying too many to count. He's got so many victories and so many crowns on his head. And if you're thinking, like, why would anybody wear more than one crown? Back in those days, it was actually very common. If you're an emperor or a leader of, a, of an empire, the, as you conquered different regions, every time you conquered it, you would get a crown of that region. And you would kind of, Right? You would kind of amass them, and you would have like a crown room. And so it says Jesus has so many crowns that you can't even count them. But more, in chapter 12, verses 3, when we first found the uh, great dragon, we met him for the first time, it says that the great dragon has seven heads and seven diadems on the heads, which means it's one, uh, one crown for each head. What John is saying is Jesus only has one head, but he's got so many crowns you can't count. That great dragon who you thought was so great has got seven heads and only seven diadems, only one per head. He's not actually that great. So Jesus rides into battle with all the victories already with him. He is a bad man. Number five, Jesus wins because he has his name written upon him which no one knows except himself. This is a bit tricky to, I think, uh, interpret, but I think there's two things that we got to know. One, to know someone's name is to exercise control over him or her. For instance, if I go, Stephanie, she looked. I just exercised my control over her because I know her name. When you call somebody's name, they respond to you. They turn to you. It's to exercise some sort of control over them. It's why in English, if you go, so for instance, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're part of an American family, they might say your full name, middle name, everything included. Mason Kum Chung, once that, once that whole full name comes out, uh-oh, shoot. Or for you, if whenever I heard Chung Uram, which is my Korean name from my dad, I knew it was over. Right? 
there's a control that you have with knowing people's name. Of course, back in the day, name, name meant more than just a name. It was character and all that kind of stuff, right? So Jesus says, John says, no one knows his name but Jesus himself, which is to say no one controls Jesus. He is all alone in that department. But the second thing I think we have to note, Jesus, although he's revealed so many names to us, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, yada, yada, great shepherd, all the lamb, and so on and so on and so on. What it's saying is even though we have so many different names that we can call Jesus and we've been taught to call him, there will always be more to discover about him because you don't actually know this name that's written for him. He's the only one in the entire universe where his character and his personality and the depth of such is infinite that you can never fully know someone. Always more to find out about him, so he always wins. Number six, we're almost done here. Jesus wins because he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Save this for later, okay? Keep that. Number seven, Jesus wins because he is the word of God he's called. Where have you heard this before? In John 1, right? If you read John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus being the word of God is to say that he's God's speech, right? That the living, invisible, transcendent, all-powerful God who's beyond description has spoken for himself in Jesus. But more, in John 1, 3, it says that through the word, all things were created, and apart from him, nothing came into being, which means Jesus was responsible with God in the beginning to create everything, which means anything that lives and is created comes from him. And the question we got to ask ourselves is, who can overcome the one that creates The creator always exercises control over his creations. Who can create the one that's created the entire universe? No one. Political power? None. Economic power? None. Military power? None. Spiritual power? None. Who? No one. So even if the final battle had to be fought, is there any real chance or any doubt on who would win? No. Evil would always lose. The creator always wins. Evil is bad, like really bad. Evil is powerful, really powerful. But evil is no match for the word of God because the word is a bad man. Eighth and final reason Jesus wins. Jesus wins because on his robe and on his thigh are written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the only person in the entire world that has no Lord or no King over him. Every king has a king and every Lord has a Lord in history. They may not think they do. They may not want to recognize the fact that it is, but indeed everyone has a lord or a king over them. Everyone has someone that controls them. And back in the day, Caesar would ride into a place declaring himself as king of kings and lord of lords, but Caesar was wrong, and Jesus is saying, no, I am the only one that can claim this. It's why it says Jesus rules with an iron rod, a strong rod, a shepherd with strength. Essentially, in the description of what John is saying is Jesus is so awesome that you can't quite describe him. You can't quite put him into words. And the thing that you and I have to realize is that we are engaged to this, to him. He is the one that is coming back to get us, to be home with him. And the thing we got to ask ourselves, like, are you serious? This is essentially, if you really want to think about it, this is your greatest dreams ever come true. The one who's coming after you is the greatest person in the history of the world, a person that words cannot describe. you've been waiting for that Prince Charming or for that girl or whatever of your dreams, newsflash. 
one way greater than anyone else you can anticipate here on earth is already preparing a place, waiting, coming back to get you. And as I said, these are bad news. He's one that you're going to want to put on your profile and engage to. Because there's no one like him. Then second, we found out why Jesus wins, and the next thing we got to figure out is how he wins. It says in the scripture, he says here in Revelation, that Jesus only has one weapon, and it is a sharp sword that comes from his mouth, so that with it he may strike down the nations. It says that the rest who weren't thrown into the lake of fire were killed with that sword and then eaten up by the birds. And what is that sword from the mouth? Is it like actually like the sword that comes out of his mouth? No, the sword is the word that Jesus speaks. There's that common phrase way back in the day that we all like to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's like one of the worst and non-truest phrases you'll ever, ever get. Because studies have shown that even, oftentimes, that as powerful as that physical abuse may be, verbal abuse is just as damaging, if not sometimes worse. Because physical wounds, most often they heal. Verbal wounds that then go into emotional wounds, that then go into psychological wounds, those can last a lifetime. Words carry power. And Jesus' words carried more power than anyone else's words in the world. And if you think about the history of Jesus and God and, and, this, and, and everything that you find in the Bible, everything Jesus does is through spoken word. Did you notice? How does he create the world? Let there be light. He speaks it. Out of nothing, something comes about. Why? Because God speaks it. When Jesus heals, he heals through word. When he expels demons, he does it through word. When he quiets storms, he tells them to shut up and sit down, and they do. When he curses trees, he says, curse you, never produce fruit again, and they do it. Even when he raises people from the dead, he doesn't do anything. He just goes, get up, and they get up. From the beginning to the end, all through his words, Jesus is so powerful, so amazing, so just out of this world that he doesn't ever have to lift a finger to do anything. All he does is speak it. Imagine. Could you imagine what that would be like? As parents, sometimes we think we have this power. Mason? But even I, I point a finger. Jesus doesn't have to do anything like that. He speaks, and it is. It just is. Remember the robe dipped in blood? I said, hold on to that. Well, this is the critical piece. And I think once we have all of this, I think it all comes, brings it together. Because the robe dipped in blood tells us that before this final battle, Jesus already had blood on his robe. He rode into this quote-unquote final battle with blood staining his robe already. So then you have to ask, where did it come from? And whose blood is it? And the only possible answer that I think I can find continually through and through is that this blood is his own shed on the cross. It's why in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, 15, it says, He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And if you remember back to chapter 14, 20, when we went through it, right, it says that the winepress of God's wrath is the cross, right? And it's treaded on outside the city. Remember that little picture? And it says this is where, and there's enough wine to fill up, like, the entire, like, world kind of thing, right? This, the cross, is where he took on the full wrath of God. But here's the thing, okay? Jesus is a bad man, I've been telling you. He's unlike anyone else that you've ever met. 
He's so powerful, so amazing. We can't describe his words. And he's so powerful that everything happens simply by he speaks. Get this. The reason why his blood, a robe was dipped in blood, and the reason why he treads the wine press, get this. How was Jesus crucified? Do you, uh, crucified? Do you remember? Do you remember how it all goes down? They take him, they beat him, they do all this, they hang him up. And he's hanging there on the cross. And right at the end, right before Jesus actually dies, it says, before he breathes his last, he does a few things. He cries out, one, into your hands and commit your spirit. That's what Luke says. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out a loud cry. And then in John, which is I think the important one, he cries, it is finished. Even in his death, Jesus speaks it to allow it to happen. Even death can't touch him until he says, now you can touch me. Even death is defeated by the sword from the mouth of Jesus through which he shed his own blood, that which stains his robe. It's why Jesus' army isn't dressed in uniform. Did you notice? He's got an army of people flocking him and following him, but they're not dressed in uniform. They're dressed in pure white linens, and linens are the clothing of priests, not soldiers. It's because Jesus' army doesn't ever need to shed or take any blood. Jesus did all of that already. Enough to cover everything, remember? All we have to do is witness, announce, implement the message and the truth and life of the king that Jesus is a bad man and he's already won the war. He's won, so who are we? So ask yourself, have you ever heard of anyone have you ever met anyone like this? Have you ever seen even anyone like this? And to think, look, here he comes. Here he comes. Why? For you, for me. Here he comes for you. Because he's purchased us and he's won us. He is ours and we are his. It's why the question throughout the entire book is who will you choose and who will you worship? The one who wins the one who speaks it and things are, or the one who's going down in a heap of flames, literally into the lake of fire, or to be eaten up by a bunch of birds after they've died. That sucks. So ask yourself, do you believe Jesus is greater than any darkness, any evil, any pain, any hurt? Because Scripture tells us he is. That's why Jesus often asks, why are you afraid? That's why he says, do not be afraid. I am greater than anything you've ever seen or heard or known. Because if we believed indeed Jesus was this bad man as he is, then we would not worry. Why do we worry so much? Where's our trust? As I invite the praise team up, I want to finish with this last story. The story that my professor tells. At a seminary, which is where pastors go to school to become pastors, there are a bunch of students. And these students, these seminary students, future pastors-to-be, they would go to a gym and they'd play ball, right? And they'd go to the gym a couple times a week and they'd play ball. And every time they go, they'd go to class and they'd go change and they'd leave all their bags on the side and their books and everything, right? And the janitor who would let them use the gym and clean up after them, while they were playing, would find the time. They would go buy the books and then he would start reading the books. He asked them, hey, can I read your books? And they're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so after a little while, one of the students went up to him one day as he was reading and he goes, hey, what you reading? And the janitor goes, Revelation. So the seminarian, he smiles, and he goes, um, do you even understand what you're reading? And the janitor goes, oh, yeah, I do. And 
Perrin and the Janet had a really thick, like, southern draw, right? I'm not even going to attempt to do it, but anyways. And the seminarian, right, who was talking to him, having read probably wrong commentaries and concluding that the book of Revelation was, like, too hard and basically, like, unintelligible and known, uh, you know, he chuckles. And then with sarcasm, he looks at the janitor and he goes, um, all right, tell me what you think it means. What does it all mean, janitor? And the janitor looks around the room like this, kind of looks, make sure no one's listening. And he leans in, he goes, and he's like, yeah, what does it mean? And he goes, it means Jesus has gone away. Things are not as they seem. Jesus is going to win. Actually, maybe the janitor got it wrong. He has already won. Whose side are you going to be on? The one that wins or the one that's going into the lake of fire to be eaten up by a bunch of birds? Our bridegroom is a bad man. The question is, will you be on his side? And are you preparing yourself waiting for him? Or are you waiting for something that's going to end in a heap of flames? Think about that. Think about that as we sing and respond. That's why we sing, great are you, Lord. That's why we sing, it's all about you. Because Jesus is going to win. And we are the ones that he wins to bring back home. We're the prize. I pray and I hope that you would allow yourself to see him and allow yourself to be that prize. Thank you.